I'm beginning this evening's talk with some words from the Buddha. So you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And from Crowfoot, who was the leader of the Blackfoot American Indian tribe in the early 1900s. What is life? It's the flash of a firefly in night. It's the breath of buffalo in wintertime. It's the little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And from wandering Japanese monk Ryokan, our life in this world, to what should I compare it? It's like an echo resounding through the mountain into the empty sky. There's a very isolated area high in the mountains of Tibet where people have no access to matches and of course there's no electricity or gas for light or for warmth or for cooking. So for these necessities of life, light, warmth and cooking, a fire is necessary. To start a fire without matches each day is quite a project. It takes some time. So the people in this area never let their fires go out. All day, every day, they keep a small fire burning. And at night they cover it with ashes so that in the morning there are at least a few coals uh, to start their day, hot coals to start their day. The Buddhist monks in this area practice so deeply with impermanence as their practice that at night they don't try to save any coals because they're so sure that in the morning they may not be alive. And also when they finish their last cup of tea at night, they turn their cup over for the same reason, to let the next person know that they're finished, really finished. So every night they prepare to die in a sense, they're ready. The deep knowing, the deep living with impermanence is an entryway, a gateway to liberation, a gateway to freeing the heart, mind. The only thing that we can really know for sure is that everything changes. So paradoxically, the only thing that we can hold on to is the realization, the intuitive insight of impermanence. The wisdom, the understanding of Anicca is really the bedrock of the Buddhist teachings. It was the initial insight that impelled him to leave the palace where he was born and grew up in a path searching for enlightenment. Siddhartha Gautama 
our Buddha to be grew up in very comfortable and protected surroundings in an area of India at the foot of the Himalayan mountains that's now known as Nepal. Seemingly living the good life. His father and mother were king and queen of the Sakya clan in that area. At Siddhartha's birth, a local wise man told his parents that this baby would grow up to either be an exceptionally wise ruler or he would become a renunciate and a great spiritual teacher if he encountered great suffering. His parents, in order to keep him on the kingly track, set about to protect him from encountering suffering. And this is from one of the Buddha's discourses to his monks. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, and where one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Benares. My turban was of silk from Benares, as were my tunic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from the cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them, and I did not once come down from the palace. But all this protection, luxury, and sensual pleasure just couldn't keep him. It didn't satisfy. And at one point, as young people are wont to do, Siddhartha wanted to go out on his own to see what life was like beyond the palace walls. So he asked his good friend Chana, the chariot driver, to take him on a ride through town. His father heard of this and ordered everything and everyone that might cause some disturbance to his son to be taken off the streets, to be taken out of view. But as we know, it's just not possible to have this kind of control over life. Not long after they were out beyond the palace walls, Siddhartha saw a person walking down the road with a lot of difficulty and covered with oozing sores. He'd never seen anything like this before. He asked Chana, what, what's this? What's wrong with this person? And his friend responded, this is a sick person, a very sick person. We all get sick, you'll get sick, I'll get sick, your parents will get sick. At some point, everyone gets sick. Siddhartha had been so protected that he'd never seen a person this sick before. He was quite disturbed by the sight, and he told Jana he wanted to go home and spent a restless night that night. But the next day, he wanted to go out again, and they went on down the road again. Siddhartha, a little while after they were out, noticed someone moving down the road very slowly, bent over with a cane, dry, wrinkled skin, thin, wispy hair. 
he'd never seen this kind of a person before. What's the matter with this person, he asked Jana. This is an old person, he was told. Everyone gets old. You'll get old. Your parents will get old. I'll get old. All your friends will get old. Well, again, Siddhartha was disturbed and said he wanted to go back to the palace. And they spent, and he spent another restless night that night. But he wanted to go out again the next day. So they did. And soon uh, after they were out, as they got a little bit closer to town, he saw a group of people all dressed in white. And they were crying and wailing and carrying a plank above their head with something on it that was covered with cloth. Siddhartha asked Chana, What is this? What's going on here and what is it that they're carrying? And Chana responded, This is a funeral procession. They're carrying a dead body. Everyone dies. I'll die, you'll die, your parents will die. Everyone dies. Well, this was quite disturbing to Siddhartha. He said, That's enough for today. Let's go home. That night, he barely slept. But the next morning, he wanted to go out again. And not long after they were out, Siddhartha noticed a man who was draped in orange cloth walking down the road. He was walking with a lightness, a grace, and a flow about him, bearing an air of peacefulness and ease. Siddhartha said, who's that? Jhana said, this man is a renunciate, a yogi. He's let go of his regular worldly life in search of the truth. And Siddhartha, Siddhartha responded by saying, this is enough, let's go home. It's said that because of Siddhartha's many lifetimes of development into an extremely sensitive and compassionate person, the sights that he saw, the four heavenly messengers as they're called, sickness, old age, death, and a truth-seeking yogi, struck him very deeply, profoundly. He was moved by the impermanent, insubstantial nature of life that the first three messengers displayed, and also by the obvious suffering that he witnessed in relation in relationship to these first three encounters. And he found himself interested and powerfully drawn to what the fourth heavenly messenger represented, seeking peace, seeking freedom, seeking the truth. And again from one of the Buddha's discourses, even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me. When an untaught person, subject to aging, to illness, and to death, not beyond any of this, sees another who is aged, ill, or dead, he or she is often horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious to himself that he or she, too, is subject to aging, illness, and death. And if I, who am subject to aging, illness, and death, not beyond any of these things, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is old, ill, or dead, that would not be fitting for me. 
as I notice this, the healthy person's intoxication with youth, health, and life entirely dropped away. Why should I, who am subject to disease, old age, and death, seek that which is also subject to disease, aging, and death? And the Buddha goes on, Monks, there are three forms of intoxication. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, intoxication with life. I overcame all intoxication, he said, with health, youth, and life, as one who sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose. Unbinding was clearly seen. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with, often quite unconsciously, is the myth that things will somehow stay the same. The myth that we can control this changing experience we call life. The Buddha talked about how powerful and consequential it is to experience one moment fully absorbed in the feeling of metta. He also said that even more powerful and fruitful than this is when there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena. The stage in practice where one clearly and surely knows the momentariness of all appearances. The powerful, direct experience and deep knowing of impermanence. The seed of liberation, the seed of freedom, lies in this clarity of seeing and knowing. And again from the Buddha. What is born will die. What has been gathered will be dispersed. What has been accumulated will be exhausted. What has been built up will collapse. What has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this, realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. Everything in this world, everything in this universe begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form. Every form of life, every object, every relationship, every sensation, every thought, every feeling, every mind state, every perception, every experience, every breath. The world of form outside and the world of form within, none of it is static. Our earth feels so solidly here seems so permanently in place. I received a postcard from a friend that had a very beautiful photograph on the front side, some sand dunes with mountains behind them. Looking at the photo was a very pleasant experience. And I turned the card over, and this was the explanation on the back. The gypsum forming these dunes originated from the dry flats 20 miles west of the park, 
deposited as seabed evaporites some 250 million years ago, when an ocean covered this area, creating at that time the limestone reef known today as the Guadalupe Mountains. Approximately 10 to 12 million years ago, when this region was uplifted and erosion began, the eroding gypsum was left along streams and riverbanks, and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it, up and blew it up against the base of the Guadalupe Mountains. I turned the card back to the photo side and looked with a different eye, we could say. And yet it was still a very pleasurable a photograph to look at. The places we live in appear as though they've forever been the way they are now. Our attitudes and our actions often reflect this. I teach the Dhamma in Israel every few years, a place where so much strife has been going on for centuries around whose place it is. At one point I found out that Jerusalem, which is a city built of rock on rock, Jerusalem stone, has been destroyed and rebuilt 13 times over the centuries. With all of the traveling that I've done over the years, there have been times when I've looked up in the sky to find stars and star formations that are familiar, kind of like old friends. Uh, and this is a little uh, piece I found in the newspaper at some point. Our Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with another galaxy, but you won't need to buy that insurance just yet. The most likely scenario is that Andromeda would first swing by our galaxy. It would then take perhaps 100 million years to make a slow U-turn before plunging into the Milky Way's core. Another burst of star formation will then occur with winds from the remaining gas and dust, with shock waves driving out remaining gas and dust. After that, old and new stars will intermingle to form an elliptical galaxy. There will be no trace of the Earth, save perhaps for the 1970s era Pioneer and Voyager probes that are now beyond the solar system. The fireworks aren't due for more than five billion years, long after the sun has burned out and reduced Earth to a frigid cinder. Five billion years from now, we'll all be dead anyway, said Hubble scientist Edward Weiler. However, if we move out to the stars someday, our descendants will certainly witness that from somewhere else in the galaxy. <clears throat> the word form implies for us a solidity. But in reality, all forms are forming and unforming, coming together and coming apart, constantly and without end. Our world can't be solidly objectified. Our world isn't a noun, it's a verb. It's constant, incessant activity. And most of the time we only know this as an abstraction, as a concept. 
we mostly know it intellectually. And actually, even more often, we forget it, or we ignore it, or we're constantly distracting ourselves from it by accumulating, by planning, by living in and out of memories, by fantasizing, hoping, expecting, coveting, fearing. If we rigidly, tightly hold on to how we want the future to be, or even how you want your next sitting to be, all of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. And then inevitably inevitably we have to come to face disappointment or anger or judgment or sadness or grief. And we've merely missed the fullness of the present moment. We've missed our appointment with life. We're reinforcing, we're we're perpetuating the delusion, a false sense of control and permanence. So actually, much of the time, we're practicing permanence. Much of the time, we almost desperately want everything to stay as it is, to continue as we know it, or to become the way we want it to be, so much so that we believe we have control, that things will do what we want them to do. But this belief is really only make-believe, made-up beliefs. As our practice deepens and we begin to see more clearly, we discover that actually belief has little or nothing to do with reality. And that the tighter we grasp on to our beliefs, the more limited our life is. A good question you might ask yourself now and then. How often do I construct my life on this kind of flimsy, rickety foundation of make-believe, made-up beliefs, with all of their assumptions, sometimes misinformation, varying and changing opinions and ideas about this and that, and then hold on to it all quite tightly. As we learn to pay a kind of extraordinary attention to our experiences of body and mind through our practice, we begin to directly touch to experientially know the constant rapidity of change from the seemingly solid substantiality of form to the smaller, even minute, micro-changes in sensations to the seeming substantiality of thoughts as they fly through the mind. There's a Tibetan Mahamudra teaching that says, All thoughts, good, bad, happy, sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. There's a story that I'm told is true about a particular physicist who had done a great deal of research on matter and its components, breaking it all down, and finding nothing substantial. It's said that at that point he went uh, uh, a bit crazy 
and he started wearing these huge padded slippers uh, just in case he fell through the floor. (laughs) In reality, the very fabric of life, the very essence of life is change. So why do we fear, why do we resist this perfectly natural phenomena, change? The beginnings and endings, the births and the deaths. Why can't we surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we resist and fear so much of life? Without impermanence, actually, there would be no life. And this is from Thich Nhat Hanh. If there is no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever, and you will never have an ear of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. And in this light, a poem from Red Hawk called The Wheat Farmer Says Goodbye to His Only Daughter. His heart cracks like parched earth to see her go, but he's not free enough to weep. So he walks with her this evening out in the summer wheat where the stalks beat softly. Suddenly in his fertile anguish, his heart blooms, and like the last mad king of wild wheat, he grabs his child and twirls her. Through the sea of grain he whirls her, she holding tight, he boldly dancing in the moonlight. When at last they fall, he is winded and amazed as he on his knees embraces her. And then she takes her leaving like a wild wheat flower dancing, waving in the softly breathing wind. He watches her go, weaving, moving slowly through the moonlight. And he fingers ripened grain in calloused hand. There's just one thing to do now that his daughter is departed to harvest cleanly and without regret. In this way he pays homage to the precious seeds he's planted. One blooms by rooting, one by blowing away. Looked at from these perspectives, Anisha is actually an amazing natural marvel. The universal movement of constant change and cycling of all of the life on the planet. And the possibility of immediate presence with the potential joys in this changing process. Not getting caught up, getting lost in in sinking in hopes, fears, attachments, or regrets. We might consider that all of the life on the planet is dying all of the time in similar volume as, for instance, the new life that brings such incredible beauty, joy, and delight to us each spring. And the new day or the new life that greets us every morning when we wake up. And this is from William Blake. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life 
destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So how might we move into a deeper exploration and acceptance of the changing nature of things, the way of things, our nature as nature? There are many, many doors, many mirrors in our practice, in our life. It's said that there are 84,000 Dharma doors that we can go through. So for example, you've been sitting for an hour. Calm, tranquility, a degree of stillness and sweetness has developed and is known. And then the thought coming through. Oh, this is good. I'll just stay here for another hour or more. And then, strong bodily pain. Sensations in the legs start up. Maybe you continue holding tightly to your agenda, your hope, your preference to sit another hour and get through the pain. Put up with it. Tough it out. Find a way to get rid of it. Or maybe try to ignore it. Or somehow pretend it's not there so that you can meet your preference, your goal. This relationship to pain makes it a thing. Something solid, substantial, a concept. And something to control so that you can continue what you've chosen to do. The thing that you think will lead to your awakening, sitting another hour. Or maybe you relate to the pain via the without mind. A mind not made up, without any preferences, and without the concept of pain. You might simply, directly and intimately connect with what is. Seeing all of the varying sensations occurring in your leg and notice them changing and moving. Recognizing that this sit right now is a meditation with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static, no preference, no clinging to anything in those moments, including a time frame. Just being with, seeing and knowing experience in the midst of the truth of how it is. This is really fertile ground for wisdom to sprout up and blossom. The Dharma door, the mirror of the changing seasons around us and within us. Many years ago, during a three-month retreat that I was sitting at the Insight Meditation Society, I was taking a slow walk through the forest out back. It was during the height of autumn color in New England. And I was seeing the ground literally carpeted with rich reds and shades of brown and clear yellows and shimmering golds and greens. It was incredible beauty. I was quite immersed in this experience and then all of a sudden a knowing coming in. Not through thought, 
but a very deep intuitive knowing that this beauty is death that the world is dying in its unbearable beauty I cried on and off for about three and a half days not continuously but quite a lot and at times quite deeply as some of you know on a long retreat you can do this if you need to I was grieving the loss of the world so to say feeling my heart breaking and at the same time elated though still conceptual to some degree it was an opening an opening and release soon after this experience a friend gave me this haiku when with breaking heart I realize this world is only a dream the oak tree looks radiant this constant cycling circling the universal movement of life light to dark to light snowstorm to sunshine to cloud cover the seasons changing sensations the movement of the breath through the body as we look more closely at our own process through our practice we might begin to see that we've been living under a kind of assumed identity the assumed solidity of our body and thoughts often quickly followed along by clinging onto the thoughts feelings and emotions all of the habitual fixations that we live with believe and call our own call me call mine and think that this is who we are as we practice we begin to see to experience more directly clearly and more often that things the phenomena of our life aren't necessarily as they appear or at least as they've appeared up to now we begin to experience the whole thing or at least parts of it as process happening as changing sensations changing feelings as various changing manifestations of the myriad formations of mind and body each with particular qualities flavors textures that are constantly changing themselves on both a gross and a very subtle level and so our relationship to all of the forms both inner and outer begins to change the compulsive addictive grasping trying to hold on to the passing show begins to lose its strong attraction trying to control what is actually uncontrollable ungovernable this ongoing miracle of constant change we call life begins to soften as we open our hands so to say we begin to see how excruciating it is to grasp on so tightly the fear that's underneath this impetus to control the fear of being in and with life as it is 
begins to relax, open, and weaken. The fear begins to fade as we surrender more deeply to the truth of the moment. So now we're practicing impermanence. When a friend of mine began to connect more deeply with the truth of Anicca and the understanding that he didn't have any control over the unfolding of events, and as he expressed it, he not only saw more honestly and clearly and began to accept that his day never went just as he planned it, he also began to see and accept that his aging body was no different than the day that this too was simply unfolding, undoing according to conditions that he had absolutely no control over. In a practice interview one evening he told me that he was beginning his sit each morning before going to work with forgiving his body and forgiving the day before it started because, in his words, it never goes as I plan, hope, expect, dream it to be. His habit for many years had been one of aversion, primarily a stance of irritation, anger at, taking an offensive stance at things, people, events not going his way. His early morning forgiveness practice wasn't out of the feeling that the day or his body had or was going to do something wrong and he needed to forgive them for this. Forgiveness was coming from the softening heart of acceptance for how it is. This softening heart was also forgiving itself for the pain that had had been experienced for so many years in hardening against how things are. Hardening against the truth that things arise change and pass away without end. Occasionally people ask me, as you may ask yourself and others who practice, why do you practice? At one point when I was asked this, uh, much to my surprise, out of my mouth came that I'm, I'm practicing for my death. And so it is. I am uh, practicing for my death. On one level, so that if conditions allow, I might have the great strength and clarity of concentration and mindfulness to be fully present at what we think of as the big death. I think for most of us, this moment seems like it will be an extraordinary moment. But actually it'll just be another moment. Another moment with all of the same principles applying that apply in any other moment. Just simply a moment to be with the immediacy of what's occurring in the body and in the heart-mind a moment like any other moment to just 
be as you are. A moment to be approached and connected with in a fresh way. The way of the beginner's mind, the don't know mind. A moment that has never been experienced before. So in the overall perspective of practice, I'm practicing towards the possibility of being present for and with and in this moment. But the momentary reality of practice right now is with a mindful presence that recognizes and relinquishes the ways the so-called self keeps recreating this assumed identity, this delusion of a separate, solid self recognizing the habitually learned patterns that support selfing and letting go, relinquishing this again and again. One way that this could be said is that it's a practice of seeing the death of who I've thought I was and recognizing the truth of who I am. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, minute deaths, moment to moment, even just breath to breath, and in ways we never could have imagined or expected. As practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see, accept, and surrender to this utterly natural phenomena. The assumed solidity, the assumed identity of me, I, and you, that's so frightening to let go of, is seen through our practice more and more just as process, beginning, changing, and ending, again and again, every minute, every second, if we're really attentive. What appears to be a steady, solid flow of experience, even the presence of consciousness itself, is not as we ordinarily perceive it to be. The reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion being as though phenomena happens in an ongoing continuous flow, when in reality, it's all beginning and ending, arising and falling away on the most minute level, second by second by second. And this is from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, yogis, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Listen to that. And what yogis is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana? Here a yogi sees the eye as impermanent, sees forms as impermanent, sees eye consciousness as impermanent, sees eye contact, sees whatever feelings arise with eye contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful or neutral, as impermanent. She or see... She or he sees the ear as impermanent, the mind, mental phenomena, mind consciousness, mind contact as impermanent, 
sees whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the object, whether pleasant or painful or neutral, as impermanent. This yogis is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. The acceptance of change, the forming and unforming, the birth and the death, is actually truly the acceptance of life. All the aspects of who we think we are just keep changing, including what we think we want, what we think we need, our desires that seem so clear and so strong and so right at any given moment. These two can change quite rapidly. You have probably noticed this. Pleasant experiences changes into unpleasant experience, or vice versa. Pleasant and unpleasant can very quickly move into likes and dislikes, and then rapidly move into needs and rightful rejections. We're happy. We're unhappy. All relative conditioned states of mind, totally dependent on a whole set of conditions, which are themselves also changing moment to moment to moment. Emotional states of mind, for many of us, are stickiest experiences as we explore during the first two weeks of this retreat. And yet they, too, change very quickly. For example, states of anger, irritation, resentment, judgment, all feel so very solid and seem so right, so absolute. Anger is a very powerful, energetic passionate energy with a clear attention into anger seeing, knowing and letting go of the self-referencing the identification, my anger my righteous anger letting go of this contracted, self-centered quality inherent in anger pulling out the thread of self we can then clearly see what's actually taking place on all sides from all perspectives. There's clear presence, connection, with the possibility then of anger transforming into a mirror-like wisdom, out of which can spring appropriate compassionate action, if necessary. As we learn to receive experience more clearly, with more clarity, we begin to see ourselves as well as others with less judgment. We might begin to see that we are to whatever degree also still acting out of and have in the past acted out of ignorance and forgetfulness acted out or more accurately reacted out of old conditioned habituated places of suffering many times ourselves and so we change we begin to meet ourself as well as others with open-hearted clarity and more compassion 
13th century Zen master Dogen spoke about the Buddha nature and its relationship to impermanence. He said, we do not just have Buddha nature, we are Buddha nature. When things are seen in their fleetingness, in ephemerality, their impermanence, not only is it not only is understanding great wisdom born, but also the other pillar of deepest insight, great compassion, impartial care, love, that may include one's enemy. Probably most of us, at times, have had a very strong identification with our face and our body in relationship to how it looked when we were younger. When my mother was in her 80s and 90s, there were times when the two of us would find ourselves standing next to each other in front of a mirror, looking at ourselves and looking at each other. And at one point when we were doing this, she said to herself and to me, she said, I see an old woman. It's so strange. She kept repeating it over and over. It's so strange. It's so strange. I see an old woman. I've changed so much. It's so strange to see. And once when she was 91, the year before she died, we were doing this. um, And she said, I look older than anybody else in the whole world. And then she said, it doesn't match how I feel inside. It's so strange, so strange. Is it strange? Is it really strange? I mean, it's just life doing its thing. Life being lifey. Although sometimes it feels strange. One of my Israeli students sent me this poem called Such Tenderness. Such tenderness in our bodies when they abandon us slowly, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt. Gradually, wistfully, like a semi-sleeping beauty, they weave for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom, not faults of an earthquake, an airy network, cracks of horror. How kind of our bodies that they don't alter our faces all at once, that they don't break our bones with one blow. No, cautiously, like a pale moon bestowing its glow, they illumine us in a net of grieving nerves, fold our skin at the edges, harden our spines so that we can withstand it all. Such beauty, such tenderness in our bodies that gradually betray us, gracious, gracious, that gradually betray us, graciously prepare us, tell us in whispers, little by little, hour by hour, that they are leaving. If you ever looked in the mirror at your face for a long time, just focused and looked for a while. It keeps changing. Just keeps on changing. Whose face is this? Who is this face? Who sees? 
the mirror of nature as a teacher of impermanence again. During a three-month retreat long ago that I was sitting at IMS, I was sitting out behind the building observing the grass each day in late fall and noticing that it was losing its moisture, drying up, losing its color, changing shape, changing form, curling over. I was very acutely aware of all of this going on day by day. Are we different than this? Are we really any different than this? What is the Dhamma of grass? No matter how much moisturizer we use, no matter how many vitamins we take, no matter how many energetic walks we take or how much yoga we do, no matter how much good healthy food we eat, our skin dries out, our hair loses its color, our bodies change shape. No matter who we are or how hard we try, we just don't stay young. This mass of skin and bones has its schedule to keep and there's nothing that we can do about it. And this is a poem by Liselle Mueller. She calls it Fugitive. My life is running away with me. The two of us are in cahoots. I hold still while it paints dark circles under my eyes, streaks my hair gray, stuffs pillows under my dress. In each new room, the mirror reassures me I'll not be recognized. I'm learning to travel light, like the juice in the power line. My baggage, swallowed by memory, weighs almost nothing. No one suspects its value. When they knock on my door, badges flashing, I open up. I don't match their description. Wrong room, they say, and apologize. <laughs> my life in the corner winks and wipes off my fingerprints. Then another poem by Red Hawk. We have to go deeper inside like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we've had enough and it's no longer worth it to get up out of bed. The morning is cold. The gray clouds move in like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That's when we have to go deeper through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die or their nerves will fail. Women will cease to be thrilled with you. And your, sh your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg, go gray and dim in the face, leak more every year in your yellowed shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it's easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you, and then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken while death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight, but only left holding a bag of bones.
it's hard to see how we can continue to keep what in our culture is almost like a secret with everything changing and aging and such multitudes doing the dying if we're really truly inclined towards freedom. We have to give up the notion that change and even death is a catastrophe, detestable, avoidable, or even strange. Our practice directs us towards learning directly, experientially, about change, the macro and micro cycling of life, and that we're not somehow separate from this process. At the age of 18, my closest high school girlfriend and I went to Stratford, Ontario for a few days to see some Shakespearean plays. On our way home, we were in an automobile accident, and my friend was killed. It was quite amazing. One minute she was alive, driving the car, and we'd had three wonderful days together. And the next moment she was lying in the middle of the highway, dying. Myself with just a few bruises and scrapes. And I was washing her dying body with water. And then she was just gone. It was an extremely powerful wake-up call for me. And not long after she died, I resolved that I would live life fully, every minute, every second, because now I knew that it could end in a second. And of course, I've forgotten my resolve many times but I've also remembered it many times. This experience with its lucid insight into impermanence was really a big part of what guided me towards spiritual practice. Although in my 18-year-old self, I uh, didn't think or word it this way. It's been interesting to see how this resolve to live life every moment, to live it fully, how it's unfolded over the years. There's been an ongoing letting go of many of the complexities and seeming necessities of what we could call normal life. Living more fully has actually meant living more simply, which has allowed me to be more fully with the moments of living the process of change, the beginnings and endings, the births and the deaths. This letting go or renunciation has evolved over the years to be a relinquishment of that which doesn't serve awakening. And as I'm sure many of you have found, it's a process that unfolds quite naturally through our practice. Sometimes it's a conscious choice, a decision made between this or that. But very often it's just a matter of really uh, being present and paying attention and responding in whatever ways are the healthiest and most appropriate, both for oneself and others. Which may mean 
renouncing some of one's habitual ways of engaging or not engaging, inwardly and outwardly. Recognizing and letting go of attachments, which doesn't at all mean rejecting the people who are closest to us, but rather relating to them in what might be a radically new way. And this is from a Cherokee Feast of Days. Autumn. Can there be anything more beautiful than the seasons of a tree? A tree stands in beauty from year to year and keeps its grace and dignity. We learn when we watch a tree. It constantly prunes itself, continually sheds any excess. The Buddha said that living a single moment, seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things, is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. It's so valuable because this clear seeing leads to the end of confusion and anguish. Clear and sure insight leads to the understanding of the cause of suffering. clearly seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena, knowing very surely the momentariness of all appearances, opens the door of insight into the conditional, selfless, empty nature of all things, all phenomena. In our thinking, most of us assume that permanence provides security and impermanence doesn't. But actually, although change may be very difficult and at times quite disturbing, at least at first, as we open to it and get to know it more deeply, Anicca can be a profound inspiration to go deeper in our practice. We may also come to realize that on one level, it's truly a gift of life. What if nothing ever changed? Can you even imagine what it would be like if nothing ever changed? What an incredible nightmare. No change, no life. In uh, 1985, my house burned down. There was no one in it when it happened, fortunately. My three adult sons and I were away visiting my mother, who was living in Mexico at the time. A few days after we arrived, I received a phone call from a friend who lived down the road from our house in the Michigan woods. He called to tell me that my house had burned down to the ground. My first response was denial. I responded after he told me, and I said, you're kidding. But of course, who would call up a friend uh, long distance on Christmas and make such a joke? (laughs) After we finished our brief conversation, I hung up the phone and I cried very hard for about 15 or 20 minutes. And my mother, who was standing next to me, just held me. And then my brother and I sat down and talked. And by the end of our two-hour conversation, 
the fire turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me, to bind me anymore. The spiritual path had burned its way open for me. And some of you know, as in, a in Asian countries, it's not unusual for people in their 40s or 50s or 60s whose family responsibilities are essentially finished to go and live the rest of their life as a spiritual life. So to make a long story short, I ended up going to Asia for about a year and a half and practiced quite ardently, quite diligently and then continued in similar fashion uh, when I came back to this country. If it wasn't for that fire, there's a very strong possibility that I wouldn't be here with you in this way this evening. That huge change was a great gift that's still unwrapping itself. And a haiku from Basho since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. <laughs> and from Carlos Castaneda's book, Journey to Ixlan, the thing to do when you're impatient is turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you just catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Not long before Carlos Castaneda died, he and three of his friends were having lunch together. Michael Ventura was one of these three friends and uh, wrote a piece about that day. And this is some of Michael Ventura's words. He was much thinner, older, obviously ill, but for all his fragility, he seemed much livelier, happier, and even funnier. A woman at the table said she loved her job, her husband, and her child, but still she felt a lack. She had no spiritual life. How could she achieve a spiritual life? Answering this woman, Carlos didn't change the lightness or generosity of his manner. Yet a steely thing came into his voice, a tone that made his words pierce all of us. He said that when she got home at night, she should sit in her chair and remember that her child, her husband, everyone she loved, and she herself were going to die, and that they would die in no particular order, unpredictably. Remember this every night, and you'll soon have a spiritual life, said Carlos. Later in the conversation, this woman asked how she could discipline herself to follow his advice and follow it deeply so that it wouldn't be just an exercise. Carlos said, you give yourself a command. On the page, there's no duplicating how he said it. He spoke quietly, but it was as though he'd suddenly jammed a knife into the tabletop. What's that mean, one of us asked. It means you give yourself a command. And that was that. A command is not a promise. A command is not trying. A command is something that must be obeyed. His tone invoked something deeper than the idea of mere will. His was a call to action. He wasn't talking about mulling or analyzing or wishing. To step on the path, you step on the path. There's no substitute for that.
As we touch and begin to accept the dance that life is in all of its manifestations, our life begins to take on a peacefulness, a deeper balance, an equanimity. And a great appreciation and joy begins to blossom. We live so much more fully in the present moment, seeing all the formations and actions of body and mind and heart and the whole dance and play of life around us as continually changing, self-arising, self-liberating, coming in and going out, forming and unforming. We're more and more with life just as it is, within the very natural, innate spaciousness and clarity of present moment awareness. As we wake up to the Anicca nature of all phenomena, we less and less experience that feeling of missing anything. Instead, we're responding to life here and now with an authentic, bright liveliness as it dances through us and around us. We're just simply here with the passing show. And from the Buddha, this existence of ours is as transient as the autumn clouds. To watch the birth and death of beings is like looking at the movements of a dance. A lifetime is like a flash of lightning in the sky, rushing by like a torrent down a steep mountain. Living more deeply with the acceptance of impermanence allows us to respond more freshly to what in reality is completely new. A moment, every moment, any moment, never before met, never before experienced. And as Krishnamurti said, acting as though we don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. And so we practice seeing clearly. The truth of impermanence is a gateway out of the feeling of separateness. It's a gateway out of the suffering of self-centered existence. And it's a gateway into the experiential understanding of the truth that there's no independently existing, separate, solid, static anything. It's all not self. We begin to understand that we're intimately woven into this intricate, endlessly changing, reflective web of life. And we also truly begin to understand the suffering in ourselves and others, the suffering created by trying to hold on, the anguish created by resistance, Resistance to the truth that every facet of life within us and surrounding us is not fixed, not permanent, not static. We in it are intricately woven together with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. And the Buddha tells us contemplation of impermanence should be cultivating, should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. 
For when one perceives impermanence, Megiya, that's his student he was talking to, for when one perceives impermanence, Megiya, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. As understanding of anicca deepens, it actually brings a great relief and lightness into our life. We no longer need to haul around such a heavy load. There's the time and the energy available to live to our heart's content. And closing the talk with a short poem by Michael Lunig who uh, is an Australian cartoonist and poet. And with each poem, he draws a little cartoon. And I'll briefly describe the cartoon that goes with this poem. It's a line drawing of a man who is standing up with his left arm outstretched, and in the hand of his left arm is a frying pan. And in the frying pan, there's a big glob of black stuff with smoke billowing out of it. And he's looking at it, his head is turned, he's looking at it with his eyes wide open. And this is the poem. We give thanks for the invention of the handle. Without it there would be many things we couldn't hold on to. As for the things we can't hold on to anyway, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. And let's sit together for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.